Gospel of Mark. You're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we'll get one to you. Then we have some Bibles right here. Abby, do you mind passing these out? Laura. Yep, if you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand. Did Joe put you to sleep? I feel like I've lost you. Come back to me now. Wake up. I can't sing, otherwise I'd sing for you. Alright? I know it's raining. I mean, that's quite a melancholy scene out there, isn't it? Alright. But the Bible's alive, so let's, let's look at that. So slip up your hand if you need a Bible. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Let me tell you what we're talking about. Today we're going to be talking about three things. Mountains, valleys, and gardens. Mountains, valleys, and gardens in this particular account from Jesus' life. Today we find Jesus on a mountain. Later that day, he's going to be in a valley, and later that year, he's going to be in a garden. And all of them have huge significance in Jesus' life. But they also have significance in ours. We also find ourselves on similar mountains, in similar valleys, and within similar gardens. I can't wait to show you this. been sitting on this um, all week. Actually, that's not true. I was up kind of late working on this one. I was up until midnight, and I'm not a night person, so... Um, God, please use this. All right? But I've been excited to show you this. Um, and I just love Mark's gospel account. Uh, it's from, he has a source. He's like a journalist. He, he, he's covering true facts, true story, and he has a really, really good inside source. And that inside source is the Apostle Peter. That's who he is. He's sitting there with Peter, Mark is, and he's writing and recounting all that Peter saw and experienced as Jesus' probably closest disciple and friend. Um, I'm going to have you flipping around all kinds of pages this morning so we get the big picture. And I just wanted to begin by saying this. What's our goal in all of this, right? So, so here's the question. Why at Grace Athens do we complete entire Bible books slowly, passage by passage, and verse by verse? Why do we do that? The answer, just as blunt as I can say it, is so that we get the God of the Bible and not the God of myth and popular opinion. It's really easy to fall into that trap. Why do we go verse by verse? So that we get the Jesus according to Scripture and not the Jesus of modern popular opinion. Why do we go passage by passage? So that we get the ancient gospel of Scripture, not the watered-down modern version of today. And ultimately... The reason we do this the way we do it is so that we get biblical Christianity, the one that God intended, and not something that we intentionally or unintentionally come up with on our own. That's why. The only way to ensure that, that we get that, biblical Christianity, God of the Bible, all those things, is by joyfully going back to the book week after week after week. The Christianity of the book because anything else and just being really frank with you anything else is at best a modern spin-off and at worst a man-created false religion there are too many congregations that throw out a verse and they kind of check off well we read the bible and then that pastor spins off and gives a message on uh, you know second opinions chapter four you know i mean it's it's just his opinion or, or her opinion and, me- and their message. And, and if you want to know what I'm preaching on each week, just look at the next passage. 
Buddy Hoffman, our founding pastor, used to say, the sermon is already there. You just got to go find it. It's in the text. Because if we don't do that, then we're not going to be living biblical Christianity. It's been the Christianity of John Raymond or Francis Chan or Priscilla Shire. Or I don't know, name whoever you want. And so that's why we do it the way we do it. Um, and so let's continue to go back to the gospel of Mark because we want the real thing. That's why you're here. And I really think this gospel has fed us pretty darn well over this school year so far. And so if you needed a pep talk, there it is. That pumped me up last night at midnight. All right, so let's pick up where we left off. Chapter 9, verse 2. I just want to look at this opening verse in verse 2 so we can kind of set the scene. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So that's what's happening. They're climbing a mountain. There's four of them, Jesus and the three disciples. But look what it says right there in the verse. It says, six days ago. So the question we have to ask is, what happened just six days ago? Think of it like a TV show, a TV series. It says, six days prior, right? And you go back. And you see what happens, right? What happened six days prior right there in chapter 8 is that Peter and the disciples went out on a limb and they guessed at Jesus' true identity. Kind of the hero behind the mask. They'd seen all these wonderful miracles. And finally, Jesus asked them straight up. He says, you've seen it all. Who do you really say that I am? Who am I? What's my true identity? Take a look at it. It's right there in chapter 8, verse 27. And on the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, all their superheroes. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. That's what he says. Okay? So he gets his identity right. So now it's six days later, and the disciples are about to get a massive confirmation on what Peter said. So he goes out on a limb. He's like, think you're the Christ. We've seen enough. I think you're the Christ. I think you're the Messiah. I think you're the Son of God. They're about to get a massive confirmation of what they just said. Take a look in verse 2 again. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Well, that's quite a confirmation, isn't it? Right there, Jesus transfigures before you and starts to just shine with this white brightness. You can imagine Peter's reaction. He really is the Messiah. I told you. We got it right. They just confirmed right there. And here's what's going to happen. Well, let's keep reading. Why did I stop there? Let's keep reading. Let's go all the way through. Yeah, let's go all the way through. Verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. 
So that's quite a mountaintop experience. How many of you climb Stone Mountain? I've climbed Stone Mountain. That's more of a climb than you realize, really towards the top. I didn't have that experience at the top, right? It's something they would have never forgotten. Never forgotten. Let's just go through the list right there in the verse. Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Elijah and Moses appear to them. And then God audibly speaks from heaven directly to them, confirming that this is his son. This is my beloved son. Verse 7. You can pretty much take that to the bank. They got it right. They got it right. Later in Peter's life, he recounts what this spirit experience was like as he's an older man. He talks about it. Let's flip to it. Go with me to 2 Peter. So that's a letter that Peter wrote. It's way back in the back end of the New Testament. You guessed it right. It's after 1 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is him as an older man recounting how profound that experience was on the mountaintop. When God the Father confirmed, yes, this is my son. You weren't just wishing and hoping, you got it right. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 is where he recounts it. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when, we re- for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Never forgot that. Now, this isn't the only time God has audibly spoke from heaven in Mark's gospel. Do you remember the first one? Let's take a look at that. Go all the way back to Mark's gospel and go to the very first chapter in Mark's gospel. There's two times where this happens. Second one's on the mountain, and the first one is right here at Jesus' baptism. Audible voice. Verse 10, And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The first time the voice happens in Mark, this is for Jesus' benefit. The second time it happens on the mountain, it's for the disciples' benefit saying, yes, he really is God's son. Notice what God says to them. So I told you you're going to be flipping. Go back to chapter 9. Notice what God says to the disciples on the mountain. He doesn't just say, hey, you got the identity right. This is my beloved son. He kind of has a fatherly moment. And he says in verse 7, chapter 9, this is my beloved son, Listen to him. That's how I hear the tone. Listen to the man. Listen to him. Why does he need to say that? Why does God need to explicitly say, listen to him? The answer is because Jesus said some things they really didn't like to hear. Jesus said some things that they they wanted nothing to do with. Remember what happened right before they climbed the mountain, right? What what does verse 2 say? It says, And after six days, Jesus took them back. So again, 
Zoom back six, six days prior, right? Go back. After Peter says, you are the Christ, he then says something that they don't want to hear. And so God the Father has to say, listen to him. He says in verse 31, chapter 8, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So he's talking about himself. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Jesus said this plainly. Watch what Peter does. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. That word rebuke is the exact same word they use earlier in the Gospels when Jesus was rebuking a demon out of a person. Peter's letting him have it. You're not going to die. That's not part of the program. You're going to be king. You're going to be in the palace. We're going to be on your cabinet. That, that's not the plan for you to be rejected and die. right? And so God the Father has to say, listen to him. He's my son. Listen to him. In so many ways, God the Father is saying, he must suffer the cross and rise again to bring the kingdom and world salvation. It's the only way. Let's talk about this. Why Moses and Elijah? Right? Now, now Peter, who was it? Peter, James, and John, right? They would have understood that this was Moses and Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet. Moses, the leader of God's people, the, the, the writer of the law. I mean, these are the heroes of the heroes of these young Jewish teenagers and of their whole culture, right? And so, so why Moses and Elijah? And why were they talking to him on the mountain? And what exactly were they discussing on the mountain? Well, they were discussing Jesus' sacrificial death, that he was about to die in Jerusalem. That's what they were talking about, which is interesting. And you, and you say, well, how do you know that? Well, Luke's gospel actually captures their conversation. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. It says in Luke 9.31, same, same account. He just goes into more detail. It says, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke to Jesus of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So God the Father sends these old prophets to Jesus, his son, to talk about and in some ways prepare him for what was going to happen when he came back down that mountain and head to Jerusalem, the death that he was going to die. But why... Moses and Elijah. Why not King David and Isaiah? This is really important. Because Moses and Elijah represent all that came before Jesus in the Old Testament. Let me explain. Moses represents all of the law and Elijah all of the prophets. All of the law and all of the prophets. When Jesus gets asked, hey, sum up the whole Old Testament, they say, sum up the law and the prophets. That's, the, that's, that's, the, that's everything that's happened before Jesus. And so here's what's happening here. Jesus is about to accomplish all that Moses and Elijah predicted by his coming death and resurrection. Jesus is about to fulfill all that is written in the law and the prophets by his coming death in Jerusalem and resurrection. It's a profound moment on the mountain. Watch how it ends. Verse, verse 8. It says, so they've heard the voice. It says they're already terrified. There's a cloud overshadowing these three young men. And then verse 8, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So as the cloud fades 
and Moses and Elijah disappear, Jesus is left alone. It's just Jesus there with the trembling disciples. Everything that has come before in the Old Testament was mere preparation for Jesus' coming and the salvation he would accomplish. So now when Moses and Elijah disappear and it's just Jesus, the fate of the entire world now rests on his shoulders. All has been prepared. Now it's his time. Now here's the thing. Jesus could have stayed on the mountain a little longer, right? Quite an awesome experience. He could have stayed up there a little longer. He knows, that, he knows what coming down the mountain will mean for him. And shoot, Peter's already said that he's, he'll build lodging for him, right? In verse 5, he says, I'll build you a tent and Moses a tent and Elijah a tent. He, he could have lingered up there longer because he knows that when he comes back down off that mountain, a chain of divine events is going to kick into place and he'll be heading to Jerusalem to, be, to suffer, to be rejected, and to be killed. So it's a hinge moment for Jesus. What does Jesus do? Well, he makes the trek back down the mountain, resolved to die for the world. This is a profound moment in his life. Now, there's two parts to this episode, okay? We just covered the first, verses 1 through 8. And the first is the conversation they have on the mountain, and the second is the conversation they have back down the mountain. The second one is between Jesus and his disciples, and his disciples are still struggling to listen to God's Son. They're still not applying what God the Father audibly spoke out of a cloud. They're still struggling to apply that. Why? Because they don't want him to die. They don't want Jesus to die. They don't like the plan. So, so look at how this goes. And as they were coming down the mountain, this is verse 9, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, some translations say debating, what this rising from the dead might mean. Again, they're struggling with this whole thing that he's going to die. They're debating, they're questioning. What do you mean rising from the dead? Why do you have to die? That's not part of the plan. That's what they're struggling with. And then... um, they try and bait Jesus by asking him about Elijah and the restoration of all things. You've you got to realize this is a human encounter right here. So they try and bait Jesus with this next question, verse 11. And they ask Jesus, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus answered them. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So again, they're trying to distract and detour Jesus from the cross, but Jesus keeps redirecting them back to it. And he's telling them that Elijah has already come in John the Baptist, meaning that there's only one thing left to be fulfilled, and that's Jesus' death. They're saying, what about Elijah and the restoration of all things? And he's saying, that has already happened. The next thing that needs to happen is we're going to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus makes a bold prediction before they go back up the mountain. No, excuse me, before they first go up the mountain. It's in verse 1. 
makes a very bold prediction. And this is what it is. He tells them that the kingdom of God would come, would happen in their lifetime. That the coming of God's kingdom would happen in their lifetime. He was speaking of his resurrection. Look at verse 1, chapter 9. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, who will not die in their lifetime until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. He's saying you're going to be there at the resurrection when the kingdom comes. You won't die. You'll see it. But for any of this to happen, Jesus has to come down off that mountain and he has to do God's will. You got it? That's the best I can do. That's the episode. That's what we're dealing with. Let me talk about us. Haven't we all experienced something similar in our own lives? Not that you got transfigured and your clothes turned you know, whiter than any bleach can do. I don't care how good you are at laundry. That's what I'm saying. But when you've been on mountain-like experiences, but you know you must go back down and live out God's will. Right? Sometimes we have mountains of escape. Right? It's easy to, those, those different escape methods that we have, it's easy to stay up on this mountain and avoid going back down into the valley into everyday life and doing what I need to do, which is God's will for my life. But we all know this. Life isn't lived on the mountaintops, but in the everyday valleys of life. I love those older men and women that have lived much of life. They've raised their kids. They're empty nesters. And I just look at them and I see the life they've lived. And the one thing that stands out is consistency. They were consistent. As a, as a 37-year-old, just turned 37, uh, that, that consistency is something I, I, I long to, to, to grow in my life. Just faithful day after day to do God's will, just stacking one day upon another of just doing God's will in the valley. Right? Life's not lived on the mountaintop. This is where God's will gets accomplished in your life. But it's tempting to camp out on the mountain a little longer and avoid the work and the suffering that can happen in the valley. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Am I just preaching to myself this morning? I wrote this late at night, so. This is not the only time Jesus has been tempted on a mountain. Do you remember the other one? It's right there in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. He's been on two mountains. This one happened first. This was another mountain of, of, of temptation. It says in Matthew 4, 8, And again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to him, all these I will give to you, Jesus, if you will fall down and worship me. It's not the only mountain he's ever been on. Jesus comes back down both of those mountains resolved to do the Father's will, even if it means tragedy, loss, suffering, rejection, all the things. He goes on to live out his life in the valley. And as he's living out his life in the valley, just stacking day after day after day after day after this mountaintop experience, that valley eventually leads him to another moment of temptation. This time it's not on a mountain, but it's in a garden. Mountain, 
valley, garden. That's his life trajectory right here in the Gospels. So now he gets led to a garden. Jesus' temptation by the devil in the desert that I just read in Luke 4, it ends in a very eerie way. But it says he took him up on a mountain, showed him all the kingdoms, bowed down, worshiped me, it's all yours. It ends in a very eerie way. I'll read it to you. Luke 4, 13. It says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. So he's not done with him. He's strategically waiting for the next moment where he can try and do what? Tempt Jesus away from God's will. Hebrews says Jesus was tempted more than anyone else. And yet he never gave in to that temptation. He was faithful because he is the son of God. That opportune time that the devil's waiting for is in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. Mountain, valley, garden of Gethsemane. Jesus faithfully obeyed his father after the mountain. It's eventually taken him here. He's about to be arrested and killed. And this is where the devil comes after him. This is where he says, this is my strategic moment to get him away from God's will. I want to divert him from his sacrificial death because the devil knows what that will mean for him and for the world if Jesus goes through with it. Can I show it to you? I saw one head nod. Go to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Don't you love it? Biblical Christianity. Let's just go to the book. It's so good. I don't know why pastors feel like they've got to make it better. Chapter 22, verse 39. It's going to talk about the Mount of Olives, but on that mount is this Garden of Gethsemane. I've actually had the privilege of going there, and it's just a simple garden with these small olive trees. And so this is the opportune time. Verse 39, And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, that place is the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he already knows this is the devil's moment. Don't enter temptation. Right? Verse 41, And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He's in great agony. One of the other gospel accounts says he he was in such agony that his sweat was as like drops of blood. It is a moment of The devil hitting him with everything he has. Look what happens in verse 43. This just shows you how intense the moment is. And there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. And Oh, this is the one. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Wow. Quite a garden experience. 
We know the story. Jesus gets up from that garden ground as an obedient son prepared to do God's will. Now, here's a connection point. This certainly is not how we handled our own garden. Is it not? Our ancestors, humanity's representatives, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, they handled their garden of temptation very differently than Jesus did. Same kind of scene. The devil is there, personified in this serpent-like creature, and was tempting humanity to what? To not obey God's will. That's the critical thing every time. The devil wants to divert and detour humanity from God's will, period. And what happened in our garden, the garden of our ancestors, is we listened to the temptation, and we failed our garden. But Jesus here conquers his. We failed our Father's will, but Jesus obeyed his Father's will. Think of this connection. We brought about world suffering in our garden, but Jesus brought about world salvation in his. As it says in Romans 5, it just sums up this connection so well. Romans 5, verse 18 and 19. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For Another connection. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus obeys God in the garden to both cover our past and to offer us a new future. To cover our past disobedience and offer us a new heart of obedience if we choose to follow him. Philippians 2.8, you know it well. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what's the connection? It's this. Jesus was the obedient son so that we could now become obedient children of God. We failed our garden. He completed his. John 1, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave them the right. This happened to to, to many of you in this room. He gave you the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Why? So that you could now, by Christ's help, obey God on your mountains, in your valleys, and in within your life's gardens. That's the connection. That's the connection. We failed. He succeeded. He now gives us grace. He now comes to live within us by His Spirit. Our past failures are covered so that now we can become obedient, life-pulsating people in Him. And now our mountains and our valleys and our gardens can be different. Let me bring this home for you. What has God called you to do in this life? What's your purpose? What, let me ask you this and really think about it. And everyone's in different seasons. We have some students in here. We have both middle, high, college. We have young adults. We have adults, uh, retired. You, you know the deal. Here's the question. 
What is your best articulation of God's will for you? How would you put it into words? I would talk about being a husband. I would talk about being a father. I would talk about being a pastor. I would talk about all these different things, right? But how would you talk about it? What is your best articulation of God's will for you in the valley, the everyday of your life? Can I ask you a few other questions? It doesn't matter. I'm going to ask them anyway. I don't know why I say that. This is going to happen. What are the mountains you want to stay on? What are the methods of escape? Man, I, I, I could list off several right now. These mountains of escape that I like to stay on that, that, that help me avoid life in the valley. The daily valleys of doing his will that I want to avoid. Let me ask you this. What are the gardens of temptation that sabotage his will for your life? What are those gardens for you? We all have them. It's best to be honest about them. God already knows what they are. So don't feel like you're you know, like hiding them from God and showing yourself to be a more spiritual person. So much of what is a counselor trying to do? A counselor's number one objection is, is to get you to be honest with yourself. Because then the work can happen. The change can happen. What is the Holy Spirit called? Jesus calls him your counselor. What is his number one object, uh, objective? To get you to be honest and stop showing face to God. Because then the work can happen. What are your mountains? What are your gardens? What's that, what's that valley of his will every day you're called to? I love Ephesians 2, verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Hope was created in Christ Jesus for good works. Will was created in Christ Jesus for good works. And it says this, Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that mean? That means there are good works that God has sovereignly prepared and coordinated for you to walk in into. Some of you folks that are older can talk about those past good works, the things you're proud of, that, 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 that you walked into, that God sovereignly, providentially planned for you. You just kind of stepped into it, right? You, you, you can list off those memories. Younger folks, you can list off those hopes of what you want to do, what, what you want to do with God's will. The reality is this. There are so many things out ahead of your life that you're to walk into and that's God's will but you got to come off that mountain and you got to get past that garden because life the will the good works that you're going to just walk into they happen in the valley of everyday life and here's what I'm going to tell you and and many of you know this the devil's going to throw everything he can to destroy you and detour you from God's will He's going to do it. There, more gardens are coming. And more mountains of escape are going to tempt you. But the comfort we can take is that Jesus has overcome the devil so that in him we can do the same. Let me tell you the gospel this morning. Jesus, This is really important. This should give you great hope and inspiration. Jesus has procured a future of obedience for you so that like him and by him, you too can do your father's will and bring him glory. 
He's prepared. It says, I didn't make that up. I'd like to make up that verse. It's a pretty encouraging one, but I didn't. He's literally prepared before you that these, these works, this life, this will, that you're supposed to walk just, just kind of, I, I walked into my, I'm going to walk into Monday tomorrow, Lord willing, I don't die. I'm going to walk into it. I'm going to walk into Tuesday. There's an ease of grace about this. I was just thinking last night, I thought, it's amazing to know that God just has a unique will for you. Like, think about it. Jesus, God the Father clearly had a will for his son Jesus. There was a, very, there was a plan. There was good works out ahead of him he was supposed to walk into on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Right? The scriptures talk the same way about me and you. It's different. You're not a savior. If you've got a savior or messiah complex, you've got to get rid of that. But he also has a very set out will for us, just like he did for Jesus. That's amazing. There are things two years down the road I'm supposed to walk into, four years down the road, 12 years down the road, Lord willing, that, I, that they're waiting for me in some kind of mysterious way that I'm supposed to walk into. But man, if I'm hanging out on the mountaintop, Escaping, it's it's just it's just not it's not going to come about like it should. If I'm if I'm in the garden letting different temp- temptations sabotage my life, then I, I'm just I'm not going to get there like I should. But there's a path charted out for you over the mountains, in the valleys, past the gardens, all the way into glory. Isn't that amazing? Here's how I want to. Really end. If that's true, then what is the way to get there? That's true. It's charted out. What is the way to get there? There's one word Christ. Christ is the way. He made the way in his own life so that he could make a way in your life. So there's this. Friendship you can develop with Christ where you lean on Him, where you depend on Him, where you learn from Him. Folks, if we're not saturating our minds in the Gospels and learning from Him as a student, I, you're just going to keep defaulting to what you already know. And it's, I'm, I'll be honest, it's not that great. We're all ignorant. But I go about walking in His will when I become a student, that word disciple really means learner, where I'm a learner of Jesus' will and way, and he teaches me how to live out that will, how to get past the mountains and the gardens. There's this way that we, we call on him. And I'm working on this, man. I can live pretty independent and pretty autonomous, right? But working this daily holy habit where I go into things and there's this leaning on Christ it says that Christ's spirit lives in me, that, that, that Christ is, is omnipresent all around me. But I live like an atheist most of the day, isolated in my little bubble, and I'm not aware of the fact that I'm immersed in the ocean of Christ's living presence. Like a Tozer talked about, like a bucket immersed in the ocean. There's water in the bucket and all around the bucket. But I live in this little fiction like I'm this bucket all alone in the desert. What does it mean to lean on Christ in a very like normal way? It means when I'm going into something that's, that's difficult or temptation comes, I say, Lord, help me. When you, when you pray that simple prayer, do you think that Christ doesn't respond? 
When you mean it genuinely, he will rush into you with spiritual help to overcome whatever that thing is. But I'm a Christian who likes to live on my own a lot. It ain't going to work that way. There's this leaning. There's this friendship. There's this new thing that I think he's inviting you into. Or even though Jesus isn't physically here, it's this mysterious, mystical-like thing. He is present as the living Christ, both in us and around us, and through his word, and through his body, believers. And so the disciples' life is one where you follow your rabbi. That's why Jesus says, follow me. He's always saying, follow me. The disciple follows the rabbi. Follow me. And so it's as simple as this. Follow Jesus daily. And he's the only place he's leading you is into God's will for your life. Isn't that nice? I got an Uber driver taking me the whole way. You know, just kind of Christ, but there it is. Like, if I just follow him, the only direction he's resolved to go is God's will for my life. And I will walk into those good works that he's prepared before me out two, four, five, seven years in the future. Can I say this to you? Don't get diverted following a thousand other things. There are so many other things that you can follow than Christ. But they won't get you there. They won't get you to God's will. Stick with Christ. Lean on him. He will get you there. And lean on each other. We're brothers and sisters with the same father as Jesus' church. That's why the local church is so crucial. That's why things like house church are so critical, right? We lean on each other to follow Jesus into our future. This week at Adult House Church, one of the things I plan on discussing, it's real practical, it's real simple, but we don't talk about it enough. I want to ask this big question to everyone in the room. How do you go about spending time with God each day? I'd love to hear from Will, from Matt, from Melissa, how you go about doing that. How do you go about like growing and reading your Bible? And are you like a music person? Are you this? Like, how do we just daily meet with God and walk with Him? We're going to ask that question. I can't wait to see where it goes. That's where we lean on each other on how to grow. Well, what's God's will for this church? You've heard it many times. It's to be a center and sender for the kingdom of God. We can get diverted and the devil wants us to from all kinds of other missions and bad things that take us from that one will that he has for us. I'm done. Did we get it? Here's what I need you to do. I want to end by you taking a moment to yourself to try and name what is God's big picture will for you. You can put your Bible up and do all that. But here's the assignment. Don't miss it. We don't want to just talk about God. We want to meet with God. Here's the question. Articulate, name, What is God's big picture will for you right now? Take a minute. 